is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today we're going to tell you the story of carrots. By the way, periodically we tell these odd stories. Candy corn is one of our favorites. The, the story of the toilet. By the way, there was a day in American life when most people, nobody had them. And the story of the beard, the history of the beard in the United States. Today, we give you Jesse and his take on the story and history of carrots. In today's fast-paced world full of technology and entertainment, it's easy to overlook some of the most basic elements of life that we all take for granted sometimes. Take, for example, the humble carrot. First domesticated by ancient empires somewhere around what we know as Iran and Afghanistan over 5,000 years ago, this great little root spread across the world. From their arrival to ancient Greece and Rome, to their expansion in medieval Europe, carrots were often used for their medicinal properties. Romans famously thought of them as aphrodisiacs. Brought to America in 1607 with the first settlers who landed in Jamestown, American cuisine did not include carrots for a long time. In fact, no vegetable enjoyed less regard as an ingredient in 19th century America than the carrot. You see, carrots were easy to grow, and perhaps more importantly, a favorite food among cows, sheep, pigs, chickens, horses, and children. From there, it was a natural progression onto the dinner plate. There are over 100 species of edible carrots today, and until the 17th century, the only edible types of carrots had black, white, red, and purple colors. The orange carrots we know today were created by selective breeding in the Netherlands as a tribute to the royal family known as the House of Orange. 87% of the carrot is water, and it's one of the most sugary vegetables in the world, second only to the beet. But did you know about the secret carrot within the carrot? If we carefully bite our carrot horizontally, using care not to penetrate the center of the carrot, one can negotiate to peel away the outer layer, exposing the sweet and tender inner core of the carrot. If you've never seen it, try it out. Set aside the outer layer of the carrot so the flavor doesn't interfere with the enjoyment of that succulent carrot tender. It's perfectly healthy for dogs to eat carrots, and apparently it's okay for cats too. But I've never seen a cat eating a carrot, have you? The world's longest carrot was measured to be over 19 feet long, and the heaviest grown in 1998, weighing in at 19 pounds. The average number of carrots one person eats in their lifetime is 10,866. The city of Holtville, California is often called the carrot capital of the world. They have an annual carrot festival that dates back more than 70 years. Really, there is no place like Hopeville. People compliment us quite a bit on our parade. Uh, The parade has always been a big tradition. If you went to school here, you were in the parade, in the carrot festival parade. Well, it's good for all the local businesses. I I know a lot of the local business owners, and this is one of the weekends that they prepare for all year long, and I think it's a really good thing. It brings a lot of money into town. Recent world production of carrots was at 42.7 million tons, with China producing 48% of the world total. Other major producers were the European Union, Uzbekistan, Russia, the United States, and Ukraine. Here's Matthew Martin, a carrot farmer from Chico, California. 
the biggest misnomer is that you have to have sandy soil to grow carrots. Everyone thinks you have to have sandy soil. You don't. I have actually, actually my soil is a class three heavy clay. Um, so to overcome the heavy clay, you just have to prepare the soil right. And so with carrots, it's all about fine tilled soil, um, deep and fertile. I like to make sure I get at least a good eight inch deep till. Uh, I'm really happy if I get a good 12 inch till on it. I use a feather meal for nitrogen, uh, which is nice. It doesn't break down too fast. Uh, carrots will get hairy roots and split roots if you've got uh, too much available nitrogen. And uh, the feather meal takes uh, a little bit, breaks down a little bit slower. Um, and then, of course, I always do a, a soil test to see if I need uh, phosphorus. Right now, my soil is real good in phosphorus, so I don't have to add any phosphorus. Um, and then I uh, fertigate with uh, potassium because I've got a, my soil here, soil here is, is low in potassium and it'll bind potassium up. So I have to actually irrigate with potassium, uh, you know, every month to, to, to keep the potassium available. They throw all their energy at the beginning to grow in the tops. And then right now the, the roots are just about full sized. They'll grow, still grow. Um, but as it, uh, as the season gets colder, the tops are going to start to die off, pull all that energy out of the tops, store it into carrots, convert all that plant energy into sugar. That's what makes our carrots super sweet. Among all vegetables, the carrot has the largest content of vitamin A beta carotene, and one large carrot will give you 104% of the daily recommended dose. They're a great source of fiber, and they can repair damaged cells, serve as an antiseptic, cure eye diseases, restore liver function, and regulate blood pressure. Just one carrot gives you enough energy to walk a mile, but if you eat too many carrots, you might get a condition called cardonemia, which turns your skin orange. But carrots will not give you night vision. This popular myth was used by the British Royal Air Force during the Second World War to explain why their pilots suddenly started kicking butt and killing Germans in the sky. But it was actually a disguise to hide top-secret advances in radar technology and the use of red lights on instrument panels. And then, of course, there are baby carrots. Taking fully grown carrots and cutting them down to a smaller size was the brainchild of California carrot farmer Mike Urosek in 1986. Known as the father of the baby carrot, Mike was also the uncle of actor Gary Lockwood. And you might be amazed to learn that a lot of people still don't know that the baby carrot is basically a total lie. You see, when God or nature or the state of California creates a deformed carrot... They give it a little blender makeover and a carrot shaping machine. It comes out the other side looking like a cute little baby carrot. Saving farmers in America thousands of tons of waste. It's what we like to eat when we pretend we're eating healthy. By dipping them in buckets of ranch. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Carrots are long, orange, straight and round. You can buy them at the store, but they come from the ground. They taste good on almost anything. You can chop them up, put them in salads and cakes and carrot-flavored ice cream. But carrots also have nutritious properties. They're high in dietary fibers and
we continue with our American stories, and we now bring you the story of an extraordinary woman who was an inspiration not only for women of color, but an inspiration to all who knew her name, Dr. Olivia Hooker. Here's Stacey Edwards with her story. Ten years before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery, Alabama bus, and 18 years before Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech, Olivia Hooker became the first African-American woman to join the U.S. Coast Guard. 1945, I joined. March the 9th was the day we went on duty. We had been campaigning for that privilege, but nobody joined. I kept watching the newspapers, and I thought to campaign for certain civil rights and then not use them, to me, is very futile, and somebody ought to join up after they campaign. Born in Muskegee, Oklahoma, Olivia was just seven years old when her house was ransacked and burned by members of the KKK during the Tulsa race riots of 1921, while her and her three siblings hid under a table. There were times when I didn't know about prejudice because the only people that I had seen who were not African-American were people who wanted to sell things to my father. And they brought presents for the children and listened to my sister play Bach and all kinds of things to show how interested they were. So I was totally surprised when the disaster happened wasn't a riot. We were really the victims. But it took 80 years before we got a, an apology from the mayor of Tulsa. And they admitted that we were the victims. Of course, we got no monetary uh, reimbursement, but at least they apologized after 80 years. After the riots, her family moved to Columbus, Ohio, where she earned her Bachelor of Arts in 1937 from Ohio State University. While at OSU, she joined the Delta Sigma Theta sorority, where she advocated for African-American women to be admitted to the U.S. Navy. You see, there were no uh, people of our race in the Navy, not no girls. We had been campaigning for that privilege, but nobody joined. I kept watching the newspapers, and I thought, to campaign for certain civil rights and then not use them, to me, is very futile and somebody ought to join up after they campaign. So I thought, well, if I go and I survive, maybe someone else will come. Although I had applied for the Navy and they kept writing back saying, there is a technicality. They didn't tell me what the technicality was. So I said, well, let me try the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard recruiter was just so welcoming. She wanted to be the first one to enroll an African-American. Miss Hooker enlisted with the U.S. Coast Guard in February 1945. On March 9th, she went to basic training in Brooklyn, New York when they told us to go to basic training, 
I took a trunk with all my luxuries in it. I didn't know. The seven girls, other girls that went when I went, all had duffel bags. Everything was new to me. They get you up at five o'clock in the morning and you do exercises for an hour before you went to breakfast. And then, of course, you had to polish your floor, even though it didn't need polishing. <laughs> and, uh, uh, they thought of chores for you. We went to Manhattan Beach training station and we stayed there six and nine, 15 weeks, I think. And then when I graduated from Yeoman School, I was sent to Boston. The head of the Yeoman School, Lieutenant Isley, had written to all of the Coast Guard stations. There were 11 districts. And the only one who answered yes, they would take an African-American was Admiral Derby in Boston. While in Boston, Olivia earned the rank of Yeoman Second Class in the Coast Guard Women's Reserve, where she served until her unit was disbanded in 1946. By 1947, after receiving her master's, Hooker moved upstate to work in the mental health department of a woman's correctional facility. Many women in this facility were considered to have severe learning disabilities by staff. Hooker felt they were more capable than given credit and re-evaluated them and helped the woman to pursue better education and jobs, a passion she inherited from her mother. My mother was a real suffragist. I mean, she was a campaigner for the women's vote. And uh, so I guess I inherited some of that. And I want to see equal pay for equal positions and... Naturally, I'm trying to vote for people who believe that equal pay for equal positions should be the right of every person. By 1961, Olivia Hooker became Dr. Olivia Hooker when she earned her Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Rochester. In 1963, she joined Fordham University as a senior clinical lecturer. Eventually, she served as an associate professor until 1985, but it was her experience in the U.S. Coast Guard where Dr. Hooker realized her full potential. I didn't know many people that were not of my hue, and it was good for me to mix with other people and find out, you know, how they thought and what they were like. It taught me a lot about order and... uh, priorities. But I would like to see more of us realizing, you know, that our country needs us. And I'd like to see more uh, girls consider spending some time in the military if they don't have a job at all and they're, they have ambition and they don't know what heights they might reach. It's really nice to have people with different points of view and different kinds of upbringing. And uh, the world would really prosper from more of that. After retiring at the age of 87, she joined the U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary at the age of 95. 
She received a presidential citation in 2011 and was inducted into the New York State Senate Veterans Hall of Fame. On November 21, 2018, she died of natural causes in her home in White Plains, New York, at the age of 103. Although she was a practicing Methodist, Dr. Olivia Hooker found inspiration in the story of St. Francis. St. Francis was a terrible boy. I mean, he did everything wrong to his family. And so if St. Francis could become St. Francis after all the things he did as a boy, I have faith that other people can change and can see the right path and not take the path less traveled. My favorite hymn, one of them is Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, peaceful and still. And I, I, I was just fond of that, thinking of the creator being the potter and I being the clay. (laughs) To me, that was important. For our American Stories, I'm Stacey Edwards. And great job on that, Stacey. And what a unique voice. And by the way, if you have suggestions for stories, send them to us. There's so much out there in the world and your collective wisdom, well, we can't match it. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. A link to some audio or video, anything at all, a story that you just saw in your local paper. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. Dr. Olivia Hooker's story here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about our nation's history. And as always, all of our stories about history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. And as you know, we like to bring you events that shaped our country, and some for the better, and some for the worst. And through it all, there have been people fighting, fighting for the promises made in our Constitution. Sometimes the battles we fought have been lost. Today, Robbie brings us the story of the Plessy v. Ferguson case and a Supreme Court decision that solidified segregation for over 50 years. It's told by a descendant 
of Homer Plessy himself, Keith Plessy. Here's the story. Separate but equal. It's a phrase that haunted African Americans for years. The right to separate individuals, restaurants, businesses, train cars, buses, based on the color of one's skin. Separate but equal was not a policy left over from the Civil War. It wasn't until more than 30 years after the Civil War that segregation became the law of the land. But not all states fell in at the same time. And in New Orleans, Louisiana, there was a man named Homer Plessy who would, with the help of the country, fight for the equality that black citizens had tasted for a brief moment. My name is Keith Plessy. I am a fourth-generation descendant of Homer Plessy, plaintiff in the Plessy versus Ferguson case of 1896. Homer Plessy was born in 1863, March 17th, the same year that Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. He grew up in a turbulent time. Civil War was when he was an infant. Post-Civil War was his younger life where he experienced uh, reconstruction in Louisiana, being protected by the Union soldiers. They were able to attend the same schools as white citizens. There were three additions to the U.S. Constitution amendments, the, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th amendments. Those amendments came during Reconstruction. 13th Amendment abolished slavery. 14th Amendment equal protection of the laws. And the 15th Amendment was the right to vote. So those three things occurred during Reconstruction and Homer Plessy was a young man experiencing those changes. So it was developing him to not only enjoy the freedoms that came through Reconstruction, but to defend those rights when they were being taken away. And during his childhood, many protesters and uh, activists of his time set the pace for him when he became a young man. Homer Plessy's father died at a young age, uh, and Homer Plessy was about six years old when his father passed away. His mother remarried into a family uh, called the Duparts. Victor Dupart was part of the unification movement, and Victor Dupart's father-in-law was part of the unification movement. That movement combined white and black workers uh, who protested for equal pay, and they got it during Reconstruction. However, when Homer Plessy became a young man, those rights were slowly deteriorating. And Homer Plessy uh, attended these meetings with his stepfather, Victor Dupont. And he was familiar with the Citizens Committee, but he was not a member of the Citizens Committee. Uh, that was a group of 18 lawyers, businessmen, prominent citizens, uh, mixed race uh, organization. There were some white citizens, some African-American citizens. Uh, long in the battle for freedom. I think their history goes back abolition, long before the Civil War, the American Revolution, who also participated in the Battle of New Orleans, 
The Citizens Committee had a deep background in fighting for freedom. A lot of those uh, ancestors of the Citizens Committee who fought in the Plessy v. Ferguson case at the turn of the century were very much involved in the development of America. Homer Plessy himself had a relative that was decorated in the American Revolution. His great-grandfather was a gentleman by the name of Matthew DeVoe. Matthew DeVoe was decorated four times in battle in the American Revolution, which not being recognized as the American Revolution because Louisiana was still the Louisiana Territory during the uh, American Revolution. So his history goes back. The, the right to fight for his freedom was born with the country. And it, it was in his DNA to battle for his rights. When 1890 rolled around and Louisiana decided to jump into this segregation chain of laws that were spreading across the South. Uh, Florida had adopted its segregation laws on trains. Uh, Alabama had, was before uh, Louisiana. And when Louisiana adopted its uh, separate call law, it was 1890. And by 1891, a challenge was being presented to them uh, to change that law by the Citizens Committee in New Orleans. The Withdraw Car Act, or Separate Car Act, was a law passed in Louisiana that required railroad companies to provide equal but separate train car accommodations for blacks and whites. But Homer's case was not the first to challenge separate car laws. Another man who was white passing, Daniel Daydune, boarded a first-class car traveling from New Orleans to Montgomery, Alabama. When Homer Plessy was selected, the state law was being challenged. The interstate law allowed trains outside the state of Louisiana, so it didn't apply. Separate car law didn't apply to those trains. But the trains that traveled within the state of Louisiana, the ones who were restricted by race in each car, Well, if you, if you look at the Louisiana law as it was written, uh, you had a first-class car that was designated for white citizens and a second-class car that was designated for anyone of color. In the system of the East Louisiana Railroad, they would have preferred to sell all first-class tickets as opposed to a separate car that had to be set up. Say, for instance, the white car was not full. One black citizen comes up to ride the train. You have to prepare another car for this guy, and you have a schedule to meet when your train is taken off. It's going to one, from one area to another. The delay that process by changing the car, having to add a car to the train, took off a lot of time from the schedule, which resulted in poor service. So, you know, those who who wanted to exercise segregation on those trains had to suffer being late for their appointments. So it didn't make sense. And you're listening to Keith Plessy. And what a story this is. And anyone who's ever read the case, and you can actually just type in Plessy v. Ferguson and read the opinion because it's astonishing. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Keith Plessy's voice, and again, a direct relative, a descendant 
of Homer Plessy. And my goodness, it's a name you've heard, but it's real-life person. And that's why we love telling you these stories. These were real-life people. And without them doing what they did, things wouldn't have changed. And it took a lot of courage to do what he did. When we come back, more of the story of Plessy v. Ferguson, as told by Keith Plessy, here on Our American Stories. back with our American stories and the story of the U.S. Supreme Court case, probably the most infamous, the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson case, which was brought to the Supreme Court in order to challenge segregation. When we last left off, Homer Plessy was working with an organization to actually get caught so they could start the legal battle that would land him at the Supreme Court. When one looked at Plessy, they couldn't tell if he was white or black. And this is part of how they hope to challenge the separation of individuals into white cars and black cars. Here's Homer's descendant again, Keith Plessy, continuing with this story. Now, that law also created another problem, which was how do you tell that a person's black or a person's white? In New Orleans, you had so many citizens who, who appeared to be white but they were actually black. And it was hard for the conductors to determine the race of someone. Until today, it's still a problem because, you know, I, I have a personal take on that, which I, I say that one of the most ridiculous rules that were developed back then was called the one drop rule. That if you had one drop of African blood in your, your line, your genealogy line, that you were considered black. And in Homer Plessy's case, one of the most ridiculous things that they were saying was that he was one-eighth black because of his great-grandmother, Agnes, who was a slave. So he was considered an octoroon. Uh, You know, I mean, that's kind of ridiculous to try to have a meter to measure someone's race. You know, it, it, it just, it went into so many ridiculous that, you know, rather than being recognized as a human being, as a person, you had to talk about somebody's color, their skin, and, you know, uh, just, just didn't make any sense to me. The Citizens Committee had already cut a deal with the East Louisiana Railroad to uh, work on this plan to change the law. So when uh, Homer Plessy approached that train station, he was already expected to arrive. He purchased his ticket without conflict. He entered the train, the train car, which was designated for whites only. And he sat down. Well, the conductor and the arresting officer were also hired by the Citizens Committee and the East Louisiana Railroad to arrest Homer Plessy, take him off that train so that they can challenge the law. 
he was bailed out because there was, the bail was set so he could be released. The initial criminal case was overseen by Judge John Howard Ferguson, and he ruled that Louisiana was able to regulate their intrastate travel in whatever manner they deemed fit. After the verdict was passed, the Citizens Committee stepped in and appealed the case up to the state Supreme Court. That result of the case uh, was appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was challenged in U.S. Supreme Court by Homer Plessy and the Citizens Committee. And that, that's when it became Plessy versus Ferguson. And it became a national case. What the Citizens Committee did to raise money to represent Homer Plessy, I think the phrase, if I can get it correct, was the uh, liberality of the rich and the might of the poor combined. So you had a list around the United States of people who sent a dollar, who sent $10. Some people sent 50 cents. But everybody combined created the fund to represent Homer Plessy in U.S. Supreme Court. And it was a national representation. It was fought for about four years. However, it was unsuccessful, as history would write it. The decision was separate but equal, became the law of the land. But in that instance, a new era of civil rights pioneers were developing uh, around the scene of that case, a fight that continued to actually change the law. After uh, separate but equal was adopted as the law of the land, uh, many other areas that were not segregated became segregated. So it brought about a backward step to America that I think it was a crippling situation, probably one of the worst, if not the worst, decisions at a point in American history where we could have actually turned the tables on the inequalities that the country was producing at the same time with this narrative of uh, equal <laughs> justice for all. Uh, it, it was not being practiced at that time. And it was given teeth. Jim Crow gave segregation teeth to bite into American society in every facet possible. I mean, you had drinking fountains, uh, parks, didn't allow you to come into certain areas. Even when I was a kid, uh, there was a park that exercised weekends uh, for white kids, and black kids had to squeeze in a little time in the park during the week uh, after school. And the weekends when everybody was out of school, uh, we couldn't go in that park. I was born in 1957, so that's a long time after 1896. Um, and, you know, it was still affecting my life as a kid uh, growing up in New Orleans. Eventually, Brown versus Board of Education uh, changed Homer Plessy's case, uh, the Plessy decision, changed the landscape of civil rights law at that point, but transportation still was not changed until maybe the 60s. Uh, when you had uh, the Civil Rights Act signed, uh, there were still buses being attacked. So the transportation issue was not solved. It was education in Brown v. Board. I remember as a 
as a child in elementary school being told that I was related to Homer Plessy. One of my teachers, uh, who I can remember, Miss Waters, she brought the phone book into the room. And while we were talking about Plessy versus Ferguson, she looked at my name, stood me up in front of the class and told the kids, Keith's last name is spelled just like Homer Plessy's. But it wasn't until much later that Keith realized how closely related he was to Homer. 1996, when I met author Keith Weldon Medley. And this gentleman was doing research on Homer Plessy, who he had done extensive research. And his book was being developed. It's called We As Freemen, Plessy versus Ferguson, The Fight Against Segregation. And his book uh, entailed the genealogy of Homer Plessy's family. And that's when I really found out my connection to Homer Plessy through my great-grandfather. And also, at the same time, he was doing research on Judge John Howard Ferguson. And not long after, Phoebe Ferguson, Judge Ferguson's great-great-granddaughter, and Keith Plessy, whose great-grandfather was Homer Plessy's cousin, would meet. He invited us to his book signing, which we had never seen or known of each other before then. And at his book signing, we met for the first time. And when I first met Miss Ferguson, she shook her hand and she began to apologize for slavery, segregation, and anything that ever went wrong <laughs> during racial relations. And I kind of interrupted her and said, hey, it, it, it's not our fault that those things happen. Uh, we can do something different. It's no longer Plessy versus Ferguson. It's Plessy and Ferguson. So we became friends at that instant. And we've been friends ever since. And it took us from 2004 to 2009 when we actually um, developed the foundation. We signed our letters of incorporation at a restaurant called Cafe Reconcile. When we signed our papers there, we didn't realize that on July 9th, we were signing those papers, the 14th Amendment, it was adopted to the U.S. Constitution on July the 9th, 1868. And great job as always to Robbie and the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation is doing a lot to educate folks. Together, Keith Plessy and Phoebe Ferguson are spreading their message that their mutual history can be a tool to create unity and understanding. They've seized the opportunity to pick up the torch, keep history alive, and share their vision for true democracy in the 21st century. I wanted to read you the lone dissenting opinion by Justice Harlan in Plessy v. Ferguson. Everyone knows that the statute in question, and this is the one separating white from black, had its origin in the purpose not so much to exclude white people from railroad cars occupied by blacks, but as to exclude colored people from coaches occupied by or assigned to white people. The thing to accomplish was, under the guise of giving equal accommodation for whites and blacks, to compel the latter to keep to themselves while traveling in railroad passenger coaches. No one would be so wanting in candor as to assert the contrary. In view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior dominant ruling class of citizens. There is no class here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes 
among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his color when his civil rights as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land are involved. In my opinion, the judgment this day rendered will in time prove to be quite as pernicious as the decision made by this tribunal in the Dred Scott case. And that is Justice Harlan dissenting in Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. Plessy v. Ferguson is told by Keith Plessy, the story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And of course, our favorite subjects are music and history, and when they combine like they do in this story, that's just a twofer. Grace like water always flows downward to the lowest place. No one embodies this principle better than John Newton, author of the best love hymn of all time. Against all odds, Amazing Grace, written almost 250 years ago, still endures. When Judy Collins recorded it, she found herself on the top 30 charts. Mahalia Jackson sang it at civil rights rallies. Johnny Cash made it a staple of his prison visits. Aretha Franklin's live album entitled Amazing Grace, recorded in 1972 at a Baptist church in L.A., was the biggest selling album of her career. So who was John Newton? Well, during his lifetime, his story was renowned as one of the most sensational, sinful, spiritual, romantic, influential, and historically important sagas of the 18th century. Here to tell the story is the A-Team of John Newton biographers, Brian Edwards, Jonathan Aikian, and the trustee of the John Newton Project, Tony Baker. Newton was born in 1725 in Wapping, about a mile downriver from the Tower of London, right by the Thames. Wapping was at that time a, a little kind of hamlet Although it was a very busy waterfront, a thousand ships a day were coming in and out of uh, London at that point. John Newton, as a little boy, could walk down to Execution Dock and see mutineers and pirates hanging in chains until three tides had washed over them. His father was a sea captain. We don't know much about his father. Newton held him in both fear, awe and respect. His mother was a very godly woman, Elizabeth. She took John Newton as a little boy, up to the age of nearly seven, to the dissenting chapel of Dr. Jennings. And it was quite famous. It was uh, full uh, and all kinds of interesting preachers uh, came there, including Isaac Watts. John Newton, as a little boy, was more educated at his mother's knee, simply because John Newton Sr., Captain John Newton, was away on these very long sea voyages, and so he was very much an absent father. She had taught him to read, and she was beginning to teach him Latin. She taught him Bible stories, Bible verses, and the hymns of Isaac Watts, which had just recently been published, uh, one of the first hymn writers. His mother sadly died of consumption or tuberculosis as we know it just before Newton's seventh birthday. 
When John Newton got the news of his mother's death, he was obviously very upset, and he was more upset when his father came home and didn't seem to spend any time mourning his dead wife. Uh, Captain John Newton married almost immediately, just within weeks of uh, coming home again. And John really was a typical product of a... Uh, um an unwanted stepson, I suppose, really. He only had, I think, two years formal education, uh, that at a not very satisfactory boarding school. At the age of 11, he was a sailor on one of his father's ships, and uh, shortly afterwards, when he, when he was a teenager, he was a sailor in his own right, no longer on his father's ships, but ploughing the uh, Mediterranean trade and the European trade. But there was one extraordinary experience that uh, John Newton had as about an 11 or 12 year old boy on this first voyage with his father which might be called a supernatural experience and it's the kind of dream which you know, J.R.R. Tolkien might have scripted. He was uh, in just offshore from Venice and a, a figure appeared and gave him a ring and told him to look after it. He was told that if he looked after this ring all would be well with his life, but he must care for it. That figure disappeared and another one came and mocked the value of that ring, uh, telling him that it was a waste of time and he need not bother about it at all, and eventually inveigled the ring away from Newton so that Newton threw it into the sea. And at that moment in his dream, he saw that the whole of uh, Venice seemed to be engulfed in flames. Then the first person appeared in his dream, came back to him, and showed him the ring that he had rescued from the water. And Newton put out his hand and said, well, let me have that ring. And the figure said, no, you cannot be trusted with it, but at such a time as you need it, it and all that it represents will be available for you. He thought very little more of that dream until quite later in life, when he came to realise that it was really a parable of his life. He went on with his voyaging and then came back from one of his voyages as a merchant sailor. He decided he'd go down to the family in whose home his mother Elizabeth had died and the eldest daughter was called Mary. She was 14 years old and the moment John set eyes on Mary he fell in his own words madly in love with her. And he mooned around uh, in a lovesick sort of way the town of Chatham and this mooning around got him into disaster. Newton was press-ganged in Chatham, and that word perhaps takes some explanation. Uh, it was the law of the land that the Royal Navy could impress, which meant compulsory recruit under pressure, any able-bodied man, and John Newton was grabbed and impressed into uh, service as a uh, seaman. He now becomes a sailor on board a man of war. HMS Harwich was a fourth-rate fourth man of war, but it had 300 men on board. Because his father was um, a, a well-known merchant captain, and because he himself was not exactly a landlubber, he had good uh, nautical experience, he was immediately promoted to a midshipman, which was the bottom rung of the officer class, if you like. He progressively threw off this Christian background. His profanity was such, they say, in his language that even hardened sailors could keep their distance. But he had been reading um, a book called 
like the characteristics of men, manners and so on. Now it was a book that led his mind well away from any faith in God and it helped him on his downhill spiral morally and philosophically because it now gave him the reasons why he was not a Christian. Morality was for John Newton to make up from now on. And you've been listening to some of the foremost experts on the life of John Newton, as we always do. We try to bring you the best historians on any given subject. And Newton had been studying Shaftesbury's characteristics of men, manners, opinions, times. And this had a profound influence on him and got him to shed himself of traditional Christian thought and in the end, make up his own rules. Let's return to more of John Newton's story. Things got worse for him on the Man of War at the very time when he thought they were going to get better. He was put on shore as a young midshipman in charge of a party of sailors to bring in stores for the ship. It was mainly fresh water that they required. And he saw his opportunity of deserting his ship and walking to Plymouth to reach his father. And he was captured by soldiers who were on the lookout for deserters. He was put into chains, was brought back to the Harridge, and he was publicly flogged. 39 lashes across his bare back for deserting his ship. Now that was a very serious punishment uh, for a very serious charge. He could have actually been put to death and many died under the lash. He uh, lay on his bunk, sore from the flogging, um, furious with himself, very angry with his captain. He thought of suicide, he thought of killing his captain, and the ship uh, sailed. Eventually the ship arrived at Madeira where by quite a remarkable occurrence he was able to be exchanged for some sailors on board a merchant ship. Back in the 18th century the Royal Navy could not only press gang uh, young men, it could exchange or swap young sailors for better sailors who they came across anywhere it provided they were subjects of the English crown but he had to go and serve on a merchant ship which was called the Pegasus and the Pegasus was what was sometimes called a Guinea man which just meant a ship which went off to the coasts of African Guinea uh, to trade. He um, managed to get himself released from his duties as a merchant seaman and to start working as an apprentice to a white man who traded on the shores of Africa. The white slave traders operated from the coast and it was the black chiefs that brought people from the inland and sold them to the white slave traders on the coast. But that wasn't working fast enough and so fairly soon the white slave traders were moving inland to do their own dirty work for themselves. So I think in these ways he thought he could make progress but uh, when the man with whom he was working was away, uh, his wife, who was uh, quite high up in the tribal hierarchy... She took a great dislike to John Newton, and she actually treated him uh, as a white slave. She put him in chains, she starved him, she ill-treated him. He was uh, kept outside, he was treated more like a dog than any kind of human being. And sometimes he was so hungry at nights that he had to go and uh, uh, try and find some roots to eat, which of course didn't do him much good. Uh, and sometimes even some of the local slaves uh, brought him some of their own limited supplies uh, out of compassion. 
another slave trader who, for some reason, took a liking to this strange young man who was being treated like a white slave, bought his release from Amos Clough. John Newton then moved with his new uh, boss, who treated him much more as a partner, to another part of the African coast. Really, he decided that he would simply stay in Africa. And eventually, he went down uh, the coast to somewhere called Kitam. It was from there that a fellow trader tried to signal passing vessels. If you lit a fire and the, and the passing vessel saw the smoke rising, then they'd take that as an invitation to come, come in and trade. And this uh, fellow trader saw a vessel, so he lit a fire, and the timing was extraordinary. His Newton's colleague went on board the ship to do trade and pick up items that they needed. And almost the first question the ship's captain asked was, do you happen to know of a man called Newton on the coast hereabouts? Apparently the ship's captain had met up with John Newton's father before he left England. And John Newton's father had said, if you ever find my son on the coast of Africa, I want you to bring him back. Now, this sounded like a sort of seafarer's version of looking for a needle in a haystack. The colleague of Newton said, well, as it happens, I know exactly where the man you're looking for is. Newton was reluctant to go on board. He was now just about to make for the first time some money for himself. He hadn't got a, made a penny so far, and he thought he could make some money. And there were only two things that enticed him back home. One was the story that the ship's captain told him that he had information that Newton had inherited quite a small fortune and if he were to come back he could enjoy it, which was a, a whole load of rubbish. It was completely untrue. But the other thing attracted him was the thought of Mary, because on his own account not a day had gone by without him thinking of Mary. So he took passage on the Greyhound uh, and uh, he upset the captain and by the same token pleased the crew by making up songs about the ship and the captain without actually mentioning the captain by name. Uh, and uh, the captain was really fed up with him and wished he'd never taken him on board. And yet he did come across in the course of the journey Thomas Kempis's Imitation of Christ. And at some point he started reading and he just started asking the question, supposing all this is true. Well, then came the, uh, the great storm, and uh, Newton was asleep, but was called up on deck. And it obviously was a very big storm indeed. Now, again, as on so many other instances, his life was quite extraordinarily preserved, because just as he was going up on deck, I think the captain sent him back to get a knife, or again, something like that. And the fellow who was following him up on deck was immediately swept overboard. As the ship, broken and wallowing in the Atlantic, struggled to keep itself afloat, uh, the whole crew, including Newton, um, thought that this must be the end. Uh, and uh, on one occasion, Newton, in his rather confident way, said, uh, oh, this will be a good thing to uh, talk about over a jug when we get back home. And one of the crew members said, uh, no, it's too late now. And that got Newton thinking and lashed to the tiller or the pumps because they had to take turns at both. Uh, Newton began running over in his mind many of the verses of scripture and doubtless some of the hymns of Isaac Watts that he had learned 
from his mother as a little boy. He found himself condemned by the verses he knew. Uh, and it was at that time that, in his own words, God reached down and plucked him out of the depths. And he put a very wavering faith in God, uh, acknowledging that his life had been a complete mess and he had ruined all that God had given him and spoiled the treasure that his mother had taught him. And he made a commitment of faith. And at some point he said to the captain, something like, if the Lord doesn't have mercy on us, we're all lost. And I think the captain noticed that, because to hear this particular profane infidel talking about the Lord was, was quite a surprise. But eventually, uh, they just kept afloat, and they went into Loch Swilly on the west coast of Ireland. One of the first things he went did was to go to church and to pray and give thanks for the fact that he had been saved as a result of his prayer. So he goes back um, to, to Mary in Chatham in Kent, um, but still there's, she gives him a little hope, but no certainty. And he'd got no money at all because he got nothing for his time in, in Africa. He walked from Chatham in Kent, the 250 miles to Liverpool. He calls it his long, lonely walk, uh, because that's where he would be able to pick up another ship. This is a slave ship, he's uh, first mate. And uh, it was on this ship that he, in his own words, backslid as bad as before. He would allow the life on board ship and the life in the evenings to drag him down. Um, and it, it really was a, a bad journey for him. Um, but he was determined to go on with Christ, although uh, the life on board uh, a slave ship was probably the worst of all the merchant ships, and, and only the, the rough and really ever ended up on board ship anyway. And you're listening to the story of John Newton, who of course wrote the most popular hymn in history, Amazing Grace. And I know some of you are wondering, well, what does this have to do with America? And if you've ever read any books by Stephen Turner, the best being Amazing Grace, the story of America's most beloved song, the relationship between American singers, churches, and hymnals, and, well, this story, they're intertwined. Let's return to this remarkable story with some of the best Newton biographers on the planet. After Brownlow, he took three journeys as a slave ship captain. So he was actually in charge of the ship and the, the, the gathering of the slaves um, on what was known as the triangular trade out from England with items for barter to the west coast of Africa, picking up slaves, uh, taking them from there either to the West Indies or to North America and then picking up uh, cotton, rum, brandy, things that the home market wanted and then coming back across the Atlantic. That was the three legs of the triangular trade. In the 1750s, when Newton was a slave ship captain, the general view of England, uh, including Christian England, was that the slave trade was a respectable economic form of activity. And that sounds extraordinary, but it is historically true. 1750s and 60s, almost nobody, not even the Quakers at that stage, had really got to grips with the issue of slavery. It wasn't until you get right up into the 1770s, 80s and 90s that 
the groundswell of recognition of what is happening. And part of the reason for this is you have to realise that people in uh, the home market, England, would be receiving all this cotton and brandy and sugar, but had no idea really how it came. There wasn't the media. Nobody was going out there taking films of slaves and the way they were treated and the cruelty and uh, bestiality of it all. And so people didn't know. As they began to know, so they stirred. He, he married Mary in 1750 and she was quite frail in health and often had to stay with her parents. And then, of course, eventually he met this very significant figure in his life, Captain Alexander Clooney, who was captain of a vessel but not of a slaver. And they recognised one another as Christians. And Clooney really instructed Newton in the basics of the faith. And that was a key turning point for Newton. But at the time, what disturbed Newton, and even when he writes his uh, authentic narrative, he says, I, I was increasingly perturbed by a course of life that was involved with shackles and uh, chains and leg irons. Um, and he said, I felt more like a jailer and a turnkey. And he didn't like what he was doing. His conscience was stirring. The owner of his ships... Uh, Mr. Manistee was actually in the process of building him a brand new ship to send him out again on a fourth voyage when he suddenly took a seizure. So by mutual agreement, John Newton's career as a seafarer and slave ship captain was terminated. He managed to get appointed uh, to a job which was called Surveyor of the Tides in Liverpool. And this was effectively what we would call a... Um, chief customs officer. His job was he had a, a, a boat uh, with half a dozen oarsmen and every incoming ship to the docks at Liverpool he was to be rowed out and search them for contraband. Uh, his experience meant he had a pretty good idea where things would be hidden on any ship. But this gave him a, a, a great amount of time to sit in his little hut as he was given with a fire and a lamp and study and read and that's where he continued to do a lot of his studying and reading and actually where he first began to prepare his first sermons. Also while he was in, uh, in Liverpool, he invited uh, George Whitfield, the great evangelist, to come and uh, preach in the city. Uh, and clearly the two men hit it off, and he was enormously impressed because Whitfield was the most outstanding uh, preacher of the 18th century. And I think particularly because of his own experience and his awareness of the hand of God and the grace of God in his own life, uh, Newton found himself drawn to Whitfield's theology, uh, which was uh, robustly evangelistic, but also believed that God is sovereign uh, and that we depend entirely on his grace in salvation in Christ. So Whitfield became very much a dominant influence in his life. And obviously Newton began to think whether he might be called <clears throat> to some full-time ministry himself. And he did preach his first sermon in these years in the Presbyterian Church in Leeds. His first sermon was an absolute disaster. Uh, during the afternoon, uh, when he was having tea with his host, they said, would you like to go and prepare for the evening? No, no, he was perfectly confident. He'd done all his preparation, thank you. And he got into the pulpit and he began and within minutes um, he'd covered his material 
and all anything else fled out of his mind and he came down from the pulpit in great sense of shame and he says that for some time afterwards he believed that everybody in the town was talking about him that was his entry into preaching as newton started thinking more towards being a pastor teacher in the church of god he started pushing the doors uh, but the doors didn't open because although you would have thought that newton with his uh, gifts would be and his spiritual experience would be just a, a wonderful gift for the church of england ministry because he was tainted with methodism which uh, many churchy leaders in the church of england thought was simply fanaticism uh, he found that the door was closed and after john newton had had these several rejections he was heard preaching a sermon by the Earl of Dartmouth. You should be ordained, he said to John Newton. And John Newton said, well, I've been trying to get ordained, but the Church of England kept turning me down. The um, Earl of Dartmouth then had a quiet word with the Bishop of Lincoln, who was a bishop who had refused to ordain John Newton changed his mind and said he would ordain him. A number of things to be said about him there. He was a very warm and loving pastor, which is, is particularly interesting when you consider that this man had been used to haranguing an unruly crew. He brought with him that gift of verse, which he had so badly used when he was uh, at sea, making uh, godless and ribald songs about the captain, which uh, entertained the crew. But now he began to turn this into verse for his people. As he walked down the streets of Olney, he, he listened to the women at their, at their lace bobbins. And in order to keep them in time with their, their work, they would have little ditties that they would chant. And he thought, well, they can learn these. So if I can teach them hymns, they can remember the theology that I'm trying to teach them. So he would sometimes spend two or three days in his week not just preparing the sermon, but preparing the song that was going to go with the sermon. And then he would teach it to them before, uh, after the sermon, and that would really punch home the points that he had made. He started a, a Sunday school, long before Robert Rakes started a Sunday school in the West Country, and kids from the Baptists were coming as well. In fact, that caused a bit of a problem, because uh, he devised the idea of uh, giving little prizes uh, for uh, children who could remember verses and knew answers to questions. And unfortunately, the Baptist kids were running off with all the prizes and that caused a bit of tension because they knew their Bible so well. Uh, and uh, he says he had to sit them down and give them a little talk on how to get on well together. And you're listening to the story of John Newton, from slave ship captain to wannabe minister and to the author and writer of the greatest and most well-known hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. When we return, this remarkable story continues, John Newton's story. And what we do here, folks, at Our American Stories, well, we're a nonprofit, and we'd love your help, uh, financial help, anytime you hear something like this or stories that you love or would share. Um, know that we do them and are looking for your help, and any help you can provide would be welcome. We try to provide stories that are beautiful and that are different than most of the other things heard out in this culture. So if you'd like, go to OurAmericanStories.com, give what you can. There's a donate button right there, and we thank you for your support ahead of time. Let's pick up where we last left off. He was informal, 
so that uh, instead of going around in clerical dress uh, of the period, he would wear his old naval captain's coat, <laughs> obviously believing he shouldn't throw something away while there was still some wear in it. So he was easy and approachable. Newton was encouraged to write up, uh, as we would say today, his testimony. And so he produced what's called the authentic narrative. After the publication of an authentic narrative, people came from all over uh, to see this man with such an extraordinary story to tell. Uh, even an admiral came to see this man who was once beaten at the grating for deserting his uh, ship, his majesty's ship. People would, you know, take a coach for 50 miles or 100 miles to come and hear John Newton preach or ride great distances. And there were two people in this category who became very famous and very influential. Uh, one was the aunt of William Wilberforce. Uh, William Wilberforce was at that stage a schoolboy, but this aunt um, brought William Wilberforce as a schoolboy to hear John Newton preach. Um, so that was to be a most influential and important encounter. And secondly, there was someone else called Cooper. William Cooper was a national poet, brilliant poet, a very sad character uh, who suffered from very deep depression. And for 18 months he lived with John and Mary. But William Cooper was brilliant at verse, of course, and together they wrote a number of hymns. And hymn singing was comparatively new because certainly until then, mostly in the Church of England, they just sung psalms. So this was quite a new development. Cooper wrote some great hymns. Uh, there's one called God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. But Newton was probably the greater hymn writer of the two, and perhaps his greatest hymn theologically was uh, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. But his most famous hymn was Amazing Grace, and that was the hymn which is, will always be associated with John Newton's name. He wrote Amazing Grace as a, a New Year hymn. He based it on a passage in Chronicles where uh, the king is reviewing uh, God's goodness to him. And that's what Newton wanted to do in Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. And he continually comes back to the word grace, which for John Newton, of course, meant God's undeserved mercy in forgiving him through the merits of Jesus Christ and because of nothing he himself had done. And then he rounds it off in what is his final verse. The earth will soon dissolve like snow, the sun will cease to shine, but God who loved me here below will be forever mine. Uh, unfortunately, that verse somehow in the 19th century got lost, and the new verse that everybody knows when we've been there 10,000 years got put in, but that has nothing to do with John Newton. Wrote the hymn, as far as we know, rather quickly in an afternoon. Uh, he didn't write the tune, uh, the famous Amazing Grace music um, came much later and separately. And Amazing Grace, it never really took off in England. You know, if people said, what are popular hymns, what are great hymns, uh, which hymns were reprinted, Amazing Grace was never one of them in England. Uh, what changed the game for Amazing Grace was the United States. That... Um, Newton's hymn was reprinted uh, in America, took off in the south of America. 
And that's where the tune comes from. It's an old plantation tune. So the music and the words of Amazing Grace were married together. But then it became gradually a kind of America's spiritual national anthem. It was then sung by all sorts of uh, recording artists. And by the sort of 1960s, um, this had become the most performed and most recorded song, let alone hymn, um, in the history of music. And it's extraordinary the way it's gripped people. It seems that a lot of people uh, sing it without actually realising what they're singing. You, you sing it because it's good to sing, even though you don't necessarily understand or perhaps agree with the words. Obviously, his, his influence was spreading quite widely, and he was invited to consider the pulpit at St Mary Woolnoth in London, which was in the city of London, right in the banking quarter. And he filled the church very quickly, just as he had filled um, Oney Parish Church. And again, it was so crowded that uh, some of the regulars started to complain that their pews were being occupied by all these newcomers. And then there was uh, they had to build a gallery again uh, in St Mary Woolnoth. And, of course, it was a very, very much more influential uh, kind of congregation, people from uh, the city and from politics. Many of his congregation would be bankers. How were they earning their living? Many of them through the revenue of the slave trade. So it is to his credit, by the 1780s and 90s, he is preaching against the slave trade, calling it blood money and telling his congregation that they can have nothing to do with it. In 1788, he wrote his famous document, Thoughts on the African Slave Trade. Very, very important document because he gave his reasons why the slave trade was so iniquitous in every way. Uh, very carefully, very wisely, very prudently written document. And this was uh, distributed widely, printed uh, widely and distributed and had a great influence. He was hugely influential politically. Um, particularly because he was uh, William Wilberforce's mentor. And uh, William Wilberforce uh, came to see him one evening under conditions of strict secrecy. It was considered unfashionable, if not risky and wrong, for an important young member of parliament to be seen consorting with a gospel preacher they were sort of gospel preachers was sort of thought to be a bit dangerous, a bit wild. Um, and you know, the upper classes looked down on them. But Wilberforce, as a boy, had met Newton, heard him preach. And so when Wilberforce was having um, a spiritual encounter with God, he wanted to try uh, to contact Newton, so he sent round a note which reads a bit as though it's sort of James Bond uh, sending a letter to M uh, and saying, you know, we must keep this quiet, we'll meet completely privately, let's keep it confidential. And um, Wilberforce came to Newton's house um, and Wilberforce, I may say, walked twice round the square to make sure the coast was clear and nobody was watching, so nervous was he. When he came in to see Newton, he told Newton about his Christian conversion and his zeal, and Wilberforce had it in mind to become uh, a clergyman, 
to join the church, Newton gave Wilberforce very, very wise advice. He said, in effect, don't join the church, stay where you are and serve God through Parliament. Now, after that first meeting, two years later, William Wilberforce wrote in his diary a very famous expression. It was on a Sunday in 1787. And he wrote, God Almighty has lain before me two great objects, the abolition of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Manners meant morals, morality, the reformation of morality. And that Wilberforce gave his life to, those two great causes. And Newton supported him all the way through. And as a result of that, he was asked to give evidence to the Privy Council. He was, in fact, the only slave ship captain who ever gave evidence to the Privy Council. He also spoke to a parliamentary committee. There became quite a a lobby in England, um, driven very largely by a lot of the women who uh, would not allow their families to eat sugar because it came from uh, the spoils of the slave trade. Newton finally died in the year when the slave trade was abolished, as Wilberforce himself finally died Uh, in the year that slavery in British territories was abolished. And Newton's last words are uh, perhaps uh, the greatest uh, testimony to the testimony, because when Newton was dying, um, a visitor came to see him and asked how he was and if he remembered this, that and the other. And Newton, who was very old, blind, knew he was near death, uh, said in a faltering voice, Sir, I remember only two things, that I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great saviour. And you've been listening to the story of John Newton, and in the end, the story of the greatest hymn ever written. And my goodness, what a story it is, from great sinner to redeemer. And in the end, to redeeming his country, and the world, because that abolition of slavery started in Great Britain, led by one of the great Christians of the 18th century, and ultimately the abolition movement was being led here by fellow Christians, and the civil rights movement itself by a reverend named Martin Luther King. They like to call him doctor, but we like to call him reverend. The story of John Newton, and thanks, special thanks to some profoundly good Newton biographers, Brian Edwards, Jonathan Aitken, and of course, the trustee of the John Newton Project, Tony Baker. And great work as always to Greg Hangler. John Newton's story here on Our American Stories. <laughs>